please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, and find chapter 1 as we continue our adventure through this piece of Hebrew love poetry. I'm going to be reading all of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, verse 7 this evening, Um, and we'll begin by asking the Lord to help us and then read His Word together. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this, Your Word. We ask that You would feed and nourish us through it, help us to find in it the majesty of Christ, that we might be captivated by His love and His beauty, even as we see this couple in the song captivated by one another. Help us to know His eternal and abiding and covenant faithfulness to us, that we might be encouraged in our hearts and built up in our faith. We thank You for the truth of this Word that speaks a better word than what the world around us would say about relationships and intimacy and sex and marriage. Help us, Lord, to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Song of Songs, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins or the young ladies love you draw me after you let us run the king has brought me into his chambers we will exult and rejoice in you we will extol your love more than wine rightly do they love you i am very dark but lovely O daughters of jerusalem like the tents of kedar like the curtains of solomon Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women... Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. A lily among among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. 
His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. You know, let's be honest, it's not easy to jump into poetry like this, is it? Stories usually begin with some context-giving introduction. There's normally something to prepare you, to kind of ease you into the story, such as it were. And while they say a book shouldn't be judged by its cover, it is often appropriate to judge a book by its opening line. Here are a few familiar ones. Let's see if we can come up with the answers together. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of two cities, right? Here's a fun one. Far out in the backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Anybody? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There you go. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. 1984. There you go. Uh, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. So... Okay, so these ease you into the story, don't they? They reveal something about what you're about to hear, about the context, about the, the idea behind it. And these opening lines are, are written creatively to prepare us for what's to come. They set the stage. They make us laugh a little bit as we think of the stories that will follow. And the Song of Songs does that for us, but in its own unique Hebraic poetic way. And the opening line of this lengthy love song is, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's not quite the same as it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And frankly, to our sensibilities, it kind of puts us on our heels. Uh, We're not expecting anything particularly spiritual or edifying or even appropriate from this opening line of the Hebrew poem. But I want to challenge that assumption And remind us what we said last week, that all of Scripture is breathed out and profitable, and nowhere in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, are there parenthetical comments that certain parts of it are better for certain groups of people at certain times of life. Mind you, and I say this as a challenge to all of us, myself included as a parent, in Ephesians chapter 6, right after Paul ends his Uh, instruction to Christian husbands and wives concerning marriage, he immediately transitions into talking to their children as if they were sitting right there listening to what he's saying to mom and dad about marriage. And that's okay. In fact, it's expected. It's expected. So here we are. As we continue to make our way through this book, we're going to come up against many uncomfortable lines and many different opinions on who is speaking and what's being said and how far we might take this text. But as with all things in life, and especially Scripture, we're going to be relying on the Spirit to guide us and Scripture to help us interpret itself. So as far as it concerns us, we'll be letting this love song be just that. It's a love song. It's a real song about two people who are desperately captivated by one another's beauty. But we also want to remember that the goal of all Scripture is to draw our attention to the center point of all Scripture, which is Christ. He's the goal of redemptive history. 
He's the goal of every institution, every office, every character in Scripture, and he drives us forward to think about himself as we read passages like the Song of Songs. So with that in mind, I want us to see three things in the text this evening, three things that are true about real biblical love. These three three things are, in my opinion, they're plainly taught here in the text, and they represent the reality that God has designed for us to experience in Christian love. These three truths are this. True love, biblical love, is enchanted with the beauty of the other, even when they might be less than ordinarily beautiful. Hold on to that for a second, and this is really important for our young people to think about. True love is enchanted with the beauty of the other. Number two, true love understands the role that each person plays in the relationship. And number three, true love waits until the right time. True love is enchanted with the beauty of the other, even when they might be less than ordinarily beautiful. Well, as we set out, I'm sure you've noticed that there are editorial uh, aids in your text. And in my ESV version, above verse 2, it says, she. And then in the middle of verse 4, it says, others. And then above verse 5, she. Above verse 8, he. Do you have things like that in your, in your edition of the Bible? That's just editorial helps that are designed to let us know who is probably speaking. Again, this is a poem, it's a love song, and there are parts where it's hard to decipher who's necessarily singing and saying what to who, but there are some very clear parts, and it begins here with the voice of the woman, the voice of this Shulamite woman, I should say, and she begins by asking, uh, sort of into the open air, that she receive the kisses of her beloved. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is the woman who goes on to describe herself in the following verses, and she begins the song. Now, she immediately lets us know that she is captivated by thoughts of this man whom she loves. He is so lovely, at least to her, that she expects all the other women are going to love him also. Look at what she says in verse 3. Your name is oil poured out. Your love is better than wine, in verse 2. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Therefore, all the young women love you, she says. All the young women love you. And in fact, they respond in verse 4 by saying, we will rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they, the women, love you. These other women who are observing the relationship between this Shulamite woman and Solomon pine after him as well. They believe that he is worth loving. He is lovely to behold. He's lovely in character, as we'll see uh, going through the text. Now, I'm sure many of you have felt strong feelings of love before. Of course, a lot of us here are married or have been married, some of you. Many of our young people are starting to think about what love really is. But it's important that we recognize that what she's not describing is thoughts of lust We're not talking about lustful thoughts. We're not talking about going along with the patterns of behavior that your classmates or your friends or the world might suggest true love looks like. Rather, I think the Song of Solomon will suggest that you should wait until true love is really appropriate for you. But here we see this woman thinking about her love for this man. Rarely do we speak in such elevated language. Your love is better than wine. 
Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And as she contemplates the love of the one that she adores, she immediately begins to reflect on herself, doesn't she? And that's kind of the way it is, isn't it? You find someone that you might be falling for, falling in love with, and your immediate thought is, do I measure up? Am I good enough? Am I going to captivate him or her the way that they've captivated me? And her instinct is the same as ours. She looks at herself and she goes, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. The sun has looked upon me. So she, she begins to lament a little bit here that she doesn't think that she measures up, that she's been kissed by the sun one too many days, and she's not necessarily externally beautiful in the way that other women around her may have been. She's been put to hard work in the field. It says that my mother's sons were angry with me. It may be that she had these stepbrothers. She's kind of like an Old Testament Cinderella who's pushed out into the field to work the vineyards while her brothers lays about the property. And she's out there in the sun working her fingers to the bone. And her physical appearance has taken on the result of this lifestyle. In fact, she says here, they have made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. And I take that to mean that she's been making sure the property is maintained beautifully, but she's not really worried about her own beauty. She's not been able to take care of herself the way she would want to. She's a hardworking woman, and time has not allowed her to focus on her appearance, which has been affected by the work that she does. Just reading this text on the surface, we wouldn't imagine this young Shulamite woman being picked first at the local middle school dance. But this is important. Notice how Solomon responds to her in verses 8 through 10 and 15. What does he say about her? Oh, most beautiful among women. I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now this, you may not understand what he's saying here. This is really actually kind of neat. Uh, Solomon, you know, was obsessed with horses. And he dealt in personal relationship with Egypt through marriage, uh, in spite of God's command in Deuteronomy not to do so. But Solomon was very well versed in the, the chariot world and the Egyptian world of Pharaoh and horses. He loved horses. Chariots are pulled by what kind of horses? Stallions. And he's saying, all the other ladies, they're like boy horses, and you're the only mare among them. That's how he views this woman. She's so special and perfect in his eyes that he views her as most beautiful, like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. He speaks of her face, her neck, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Behold, he says in verse 15, you are beautiful, my love. You are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. A lily among the brambles, he says about his beloved. You hear the way that he speaks about her? She looks at herself in the mirror and goes, I don't measure up to this guy. There's no way he's going to reciprocate my feelings for him. Look at him. All the young women want him. He's so strong. He's, he's the king. He's got everything. And I'm burned by the sun. And I work out in the field. And my fingers are cracked and dry. And I haven't been able to tend to myself. And he looks at her and he says, oh, no. You're the most beautiful one. Look at you. Your cheeks, your neck, you're like a flower. You're like a mare among stallions. 
He goes on and on about her physical beauty. And his first chapter is replete with words of his enchantment. He can't get her out of his mind. She's the most beautiful woman in the world to him, even though the text's text seems to suggest that she's not really very beautiful. But notice what she does in response to his opinion of her. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. What does she say? After he says, you are beautiful, you are beautiful, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Do you see how his opinion of her informs her opinion of herself? That his true love's longing for her builds her up in her own sense of self and worth. Young men, this is really important. This means that your words have the potential to either positively or negatively impact your beloved's thoughts about herself. Men, do you know that? That your wives are hardwired by God to respond to your words to and about them. What you say to them and how you speak about them And the compliments that you pay them have a real impact on their heart. Which is why we need to be so careful and purposeful in the way we speak to our spouses, to the ones that we love. Young men, choose carefully what you say and choose to say lovely things to your beloved often. And this is important, young ladies. The man that God has for you The man who will love you for the right reasons and in the right ways won't be impressed by your external beauty or turned away by a lack of it. Rather, he will find you captivating because of who you are, because God has put a love for you in his heart. I've been telling my wife this for years, that she has been wearing for the last 15 years what I call love goggles. Some of you men know what I'm about to say. Love goggles are those spectacles that cause an otherwise sane woman to say things about her spouse that would cause observers to question her sanity. (laughs) Things that I would blush if they were repeated aloud, but she really means them. I trust. (laughs) Nobody look over there. And she means them because my wife truly loves me. This is the sort of love that's described here. It's a love that disregards what the sun has done to your skin or what your past life has done to your body or what God has providentially done to your follicles and only sees the beauty of the other as one created by God. That's what true love looks like. It's the one who looks past the outside and acknowledges that you are made in God's image, formed together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully and beautifully made. Young men, be the sort of young men who make very little of external beauty, but rather look at the character of a woman, and God will give you eyes to see her true beauty. Young women, Be the sort of young ladies who don't worry so much about your own external beauty, growing anxious about what the young men might think of you. Know instead that God has so much more in store for you in the kind of relationship that he loves to bless, a man who knows your true beauty. I love the story of Ruth. 
You know, Ruth in the Hebrew Bible comes after the book of Proverbs. Many of you have heard me say this before. Proverbs is one of only two places in Scripture that uses the Hebrew phrase eshat chayil, a woman of noble character, to describe a woman. That's the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Mind you, men, she's industrious, she works hard, she takes care of everything at the house. Don't miss that. And then the very next book in the Hebrew Bible tells us who she actually is. Ironically, she's a Moabitess. And she finds herself working in the field. Now, Ruth, contrary to popular artwork in children's storybook Bibles, is not this petite little Palestinian beauty. There's a a passage in Ruth chapter 3 where it says that Boaz gave her six measures of barley to carry home. That's in the range of 200 pounds. Uh, Ruth was like, was the first crossfitter in history. She's carrying 200 pounds of wheat on her back, back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, after her encounter with Boaz. And yet Boaz doesn't go, good grief, she can carry a lot. That's not the sort of... He looks at her character. He calls her, in fact, the only thing that he says about her that causes him to desire to marry her is that her character is noble. He looks at the internal beauty of her, and it results in him falling in love, falling so much in love with her that whatever physical appearance the two of them may or may not have have had is overcome, obviously, because they consummate the relationship and have a child together. She's a woman of noble character. Well, this young, sick love couple in Song of Songs are enchanted with each other's beauty, but it's because of their character. Listen to how she speaks of him. He's not the only one that emphasizes her character over her external appearance. Or perhaps I should say, he's not the only one that emphasizes her character, resulting in him desiring her external appearance. Listen to what she says about him. She says in verses 12 through 14, while he was on the couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. He's like a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She is sick with love about this man. She is overwhelmed with thoughts about him and him being near her. He's like a perfume in the air around her. But then look at verse 3 of chapter 2 with me. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. He is firmly planted and steadfast in character. With great delight, I sat in his shadow. That's a statement about authority and headship, that she submits herself to his character, his leadership. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, She says that your anointing oils are fragrant and your name is poured out like oil. Now, you know that naming in the Hebrew setting had to do with a person's self, their character, their worth. And so she is as captivated by his character as he is with hers. It's not just that he's got a lot of money and he's powerful. It's not just, in fact, it's probably nothing to do with the fact that he's the king. But rather, she looks at who he really is, and this is what causes her to desire him physically. This is what causes her to want to be with him. And she says it quite explicitly, draw me after you, let us run away, bring me into your chambers. She wants to be with this man because of who he is. In other words, young people, don't miss this, sex divorced from character 
will only lead you to trouble. Her desire to be with him is directly connected to the sort of character of a man that she sees him to be. And so young men, again, I speak to the young men in this church, the single men in this church, and even the husbands in this church, be men of character. Be men of character in order to find the sort of woman of character who will be attracted to you, who will want to be with a man like that. Now, I want us to take a moment as we've been working our way through this text to think about the sort of enchantment, captivation we ought to have for our heavenly bridegroom. And there is a contrast between him and Solomon here. We can't interpret this strictly typologically. Uh, Solomon is not really a type of Christ here, is he? And the reason for that is because Solomon's love for this woman is rooted in her character. He sees who she is on the inside, and that causes him to desire her. Whereas when Christ looks at us on the inside, apart from himself, we're doomed. There's nothing inherent in us for him to desire us, is there? There's nothing about us. In fact, Romans goes to great lengths to tell us that it's before Jacob or Esau were even born that God decided who he would show mercy to and who he would reject, that his purpose in election might continue. There's nothing innate in us to cause the sovereign Lord of the universe, to want to pursue us. And yet he does out of his own love. God in his mercy and grace set his affection upon us and called us to himself in Christ. Now our love for him is because of his loveliness. But his love for us is because of his mercy. So he's not like Solomon here. And we're not like the Shulamite woman. Rather than being beautiful on the inside, we're totally depraved and dead apart from Christ, aren't we? And yet God in his mercy has given us so much more than Solomon could ever give this woman, so much more than any husband here could ever give his wife, so much more than any wife here could ever give her husband. And that's why the wedding feasts that we look forward to in glory will be so much greater, so much more fulfilling, so much more satisfying, taking care of all of our longings and needs like nothing in this world ever could. But as we read the song, our eyes are lifted up to consider what's ours in Christ. Well, true love is enchanted by the right kind of beauty, inside beauty and character, which makes one appear outwardly beautiful to the one God has given. It's a gift from God to know this, a love that isn't concerned with external adorning, but internal quality. And the result of that sort of relationship, boys and girls, is that it doesn't fade when our bodies start to wear out. How terrible it must be to live a life chasing after external beauty and fitness all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with taking care of yourself and being in good shape and so forth, but if that's what you're basing your expectation for reciprocated love on, it's going to go away. It's going to disappear. It's sure to fade. Rather, Scripture encourages us to pursue internal beauty, both men and women, and pursue the kind of character that will never fade. Well, true love understands not only what real beauty is, but it understands the role that each person plays 
in a God-honoring relationship. I want us to notice that this woman in the Song of Songs knows what it means to be in a relationship that is ordered after God's design for men and women. It is a strange day and age in which we live, where women are told that they can only be fully actualized as women if they're just like men. If, all they, if they can do all the things that men can do, how is that meant to be empowering to women? To tell you that you are only fully alive and truly a woman if you're just like a man. And now we're telling women that the best women are in fact men. As transgender women, that's men who think they are women, dominate women's sports competitions, breaking world records, apparently we want our young girls to think that the best way to be a woman is to be a man and the best of women are actually men. It is so backwards what we're telling our young people to believe about themselves and about relationships. But the Bible says something quite different. It gives us God's design for the sort of relational dynamics that we should expect and pursue in a God-honoring marriage. In verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2, this woman expects Solomon to take the leading role in their romance. It says... Uh, He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. He'll sustain me with raisins and refresh me with apples. He's the one that's going to care for me. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. He holds her up. She wants him to lead in this romantic dance, doesn't she? She expects him by virtue of his character to take charge of their romance and their marriage. This is not a bridezilla demanding attention, demanding that she be pampered and adored, or trying to take the lead in their relationship. Now, don't miss this. She, of course, does say that she wants him to kiss her. And she does declare her love for him and her desire to be with him. She says quite poetically that her love for him is so overwhelming that she can't stop thinking about it. It's like a perfume that she can't escape, she says, right? Remember this? In verses 13 and 14, it's like a sachet of myrrh. It's like a cluster of henna blossoms. Now, the other day, <clears throat> as we were putting the kids to bed, we, Jen and I went upstairs, and we have a, a, like a one-and-a-half level, so the kids' rooms are all upstairs, and it's open on the one side down to our kitchen, and it's open through a front stairwell to the front door. And as we're upstairs walking around, both of us are going what is that smell? It smells like cologne. It smells like cologne upstairs. We couldn't figure it out. We're going around asking the kids, did you get, did you spray something up here? And we went into all the rooms and it wasn't in one room, but it was in two of the other. And we just couldn't wrap our minds around it. But we felt like we were surrounded by this odor of men's cologne is what it, is what it smelled like. And then it dawned on Jen and she says to me, do we have a candle lit downstairs? And sure enough, at the bottom of the stairwell at the front door, there was a candle, a fall candle lit, and somehow, we couldn't smell it downstairs at all. It had all traveled up the stairs and down the hallway into our boys' room at the far end of the house. And it made me think of this passage. She says, your love to me is like being surrounded by the fragrance of your nearness, is what she says to him. She loves being around this man, and she thinks about him all the time. She's overwhelmed with a desire to be with this man that she loves. It's like a perfume that she just can't escape. 
And she speaks very plainly about her desire, doesn't she? And this is not challenged as being inappropriate anywhere in the text. In fact, I would suggest that we have done a disservice to the church in recent generations by not talking about things like sex and marriage from the pulpit. We've left it to the world to interpret these great gifts from God for our children, and it's no wonder that they end up in such a mess thinking that the best way to think about relationships and about physicality and about intimacy is what the world tells them they should think about it. And she's not shying away from saying she desires intimacy. That's a God-given instinct to this woman who's in love, in love with the right sort of man, and as we'll see later on, and willing to wait for the right time. And that's what she shows us here in this text. It's important that true biblical love is concerned with God's order in the home, with the role of men and women according to God's design. The man in this song is a man of character and of stability. You remember he's an apple tree among the trees of the forest. And of headship. It says that with great delight I sat in his shadow and his banner over me was love. That idea of a banner is a military image of the banner of the regiment or of the battalion marching forward into combat. And the banner represents the authority of the leader of that unit. And it directs the, the uh, ordering and the marching of the troops. As the banner goes, so goes the formation. And she says that his banner, as he leads me in life, as he takes charge of our relationship, as he exercises his role as a man in our marriage, that's his love for me. That's not domineering. It's not oppressive. It's reflective of his love. This is the exact same thing that Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, isn't it? That it's designed, our marriages are designed to reflect Christ's love for the church. It's a complementary relationship, and she knows it. Now, she's a hard worker, but he's the one who leads in the relationship, and she delights in it, she says. Young people, again, husbands and wives who are already married, let me say to you as well, don't be looking to, for someone whose goals are misaligned with God's design. And don't yourself be misaligned with God's design for marriage and for relationships. It's part of true biblical love and healthy marriage. Well, lastly, we see that true love, and perhaps most importantly, I'll say at this point, is patient. It waits. Look with me at verse 7, the last verse of our text this evening. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, these others who are observing the, the, uh, uh, the romance blossoming between this man and this woman, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This refrain will come back to us again and again throughout uh, the psalm. Uh, this tells us that the young woman in our passage is calling upon others who are listening to keep her back from going beyond where she should go in her relationship with this man. To be the sort of accountability friends that hold her back from allowing her love to take over her life before it's time. There's no denying that they are anxious to consummate their relationship, are they? Take me away, she says. Take me to your chambers. This is more than simply romantic language. It's passionately physical. They want to experience the joy of intimacy with each other. And that's normal. That's part of God's design for true, God-honoring, loving marriages, isn't it? 
but not outside of God's design. And that's what she recognizes in verse 7. She doesn't want to get ahead of God's timing. She's ready to marry. She's ready to be with her beloved, but not before it's the right time. In verse 7, in other words, what she's saying to her friends is, don't let our sexual passion ignite until God gives approval. Young people, do you hear that? Everybody, we all know it's hard. We all know it's difficult when you, are feeling, when you feel like you're in love with someone. And the world is right now trying to deaden your senses to God's design for marriage and intimacy. You're being told that waiting is funny. There's a movie that came out some 20 years ago or 25 years ago, and it was a comedy called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Now, I'm not commending this, anything about this movie. The point is simply that our entertainment culture would have you believe that being 40 years old and never having had sex is hilarious, and it makes you less than fully perfect or fully, uh, fully human, that you've missed out on something. That's what the world suggests to you. It wants you to believe that waiting is foolish, that not living together before marriage is a bad idea, that waiting till you're married to have sex is silly, that you're depriving yourself. But this couldn't be further from the truth of God's Word, could it? Here, this woman, in wisdom and in courage, tells her friends not to encourage her to spoil God's plan for intimacy by pushing her to consummate their relationship before it's time. What sort of character it must take to say something like this in 2023? Young people, look at me for a second. I want to say this directly to you, to you young people. I'm challenging you directly. Some of you are in relationships. Some of you are thinking about relationships. Some of you want to be in relationships and everything in between. Let me say very directly to you. If your friends are encouraging you to go beyond God's design and timing for intimacy, they are not your friends. They're pushing you into sin. And if your significant other, be it your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever, your fiance, is encouraging or pressuring you to get into bed before getting married, they don't truly love you. What they're exposing is that they really love themselves. And you are a tool that they use to love themselves with. This woman is so sure that God's design is right that she says to her friends, I don't even want to think about that. Keep me back from that level of love until it's the right time. Only a godly woman would think like that, a woman of noble character. And she knows that her experience of love with Solomon will be all the sweeter because it's being done according to God's plan. He's the designer and originator of intimacy. How can we think that we can do better than his design? I can confidently say that no one has ever had a better time skydiving by not listening to their skydiving instructor. As fun as that may sound, if your favorite part of skydiving is the falling part, choosing to not pull the cord when your instructor tells you to will not give you a better overall experience of skydiving. It's guaranteed to end in tragedy. And the same is true about your bodies and the way that you use them. Choosing to ignore God's design for intimacy exclusively in marriage will not get you something that you're missing. 
it will cause you to miss something God intends for you to have. Young people, I hope that you understand the way that this song is encouraging us to think about physical intimacy according to God's design. It's passionate. It's enchanting. It desires the one that it loves. It's also patient, and it waits for the right time. It listens to God's commands. Well, we know, of course, that Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, loves us not because of our external or internal beauty, but because he simply loves us out of his own free will and sovereign good pleasure. He does call us to submit to his headship over and his care for us. We sit under his banner willingly, knowing that he alone can care for us and keep us all the way home to glory. And if Paul can say that marriage between men and women is analogous to Christ's love for the church, then we can certainly see how Jesus' love for us fulfills all that Solomon and the Shulamite woman desire for their relationship. But remember, the difference is he loves us perfectly. He loves us perfectly. And as we meditate on his love for us, we ought to start seeing ourselves the way that he sees us. Do you remember how she first lamented her appearance? And then after her beloved began to speak sweet words to her, she saw herself the way that he saw her? Brothers and sisters, as you think about yourself, it's easy to remember the dark stains of sin that plague your memory and your mind. Remember how God sees you. Look to his word to see the things that he says about you. He calls you beloved, his own, forgiven, united to Christ, son or daughter, and start to see yourself the way that God sees you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song. We thank you for this instruction concerning love and marriage. Would you help us, Lord? Help us, Lord, to remember that we should wait for your timing in all these things, that we should be captivated with true beauty and character rather than external things. Lord, help us to remember our God-given roles and relationship that we might act accordingly, whether we're in marriage or pursuing marriage or maybe never have been married, that we still might recognize our role in the church and in our relationships with others. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage each heart here by your word, and would you bless us now as we conclude our service, and especially as we go into the fellowship hall in short order to fellowship around the table, eating our agape meal together this evening. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.